Good morning. We'd like to welcome you here on this third Sunday of Advent. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. On the third Sunday of Advent, we light three candles. Our hope grows stronger and our joy grows brighter as we prepare to celebrate Christ's coming. We remember also in this time of shadows those whose tears still water the ground with sadness. And we pray that God will bring all people home with shouts of joy. In God's promised new heaven and new earth, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of the God 
is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in the lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Please stand as we continue in worship together.
Father, we thank you that Christ has come and that uh, you've come to us and to this world and we are here today to worship you because Christ is here. We pray that you will bless and anoint our worship. Let it honor you and let it bring glory to you and let our hearts be more in tune with you through this time together and we pray this through Christ. Amen. There's a, a lot of sickness going around, so I want you to greet each other, shake hands at your own risk, all right?
Well, there are a few things I want to highlight in the life of the church. Um, tonight at 6 o'clock uh, is our annual time to get together and sing Christmas carols. And uh, we sing the carols that you want to sing. And uh, so we'll begin at 6. We do have um, a few songs from the children's choir that's been put together. They're going to sing, I think, three songs tonight. And uh, also, if you play an instrument, uh, it's one of the fun parts about the service as well. Come six, some at 5.45 or so, and you can set up. We'll have as many music stands as we, we can get. We'll have chairs set up here. Bring your instruments, and uh, we'll play along with the carols. But it's just, a, it's just a great time together of singing Christmas carols that we don't always get to sing. And then after that, we'll have a fellowship, a cookie reception in the community room. If you can bring a dozen cookies or so, that would be great. If not, don't worry about it. Just come anyway. If you bring some cookies and you can bring a dozen or so more, we will take whatever extra we have. We'll package them up and distribute them to the food pantry this coming week. So we hope you'll join us tonight at 6 o'clock for uh, this time of singing carols. Also, next Sunday begins our holiday worship schedule with one worship service at 10 o'clock. And you can see the schedule and the insert in your bulletin about uh, those upcoming weeks as well as Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock, 7 o'clock. The 5 o'clock service will be a little more family-oriented. We'll have a, something, a couple things for children as part of that service. Both the services will we'll read the scriptures, we'll sing, we'll light candles. Uh, so we invite you to uh, be a part of, of those gatherings. Also, we're in the final stages of collecting our faith promise cards. So if you haven't yet had the opportunity to turn yours in, I want to encourage you to do so in the next couple of weeks. You can drop it off at the office anytime or in the next couple of Sundays as uh, we move toward our goal of uh, $30,000 for Faith Promise. Uh, because of the holiday schedule, we don't have any Wednesday activities for uh, this, the next few weeks, uh, children and adults, uh, prayer group. Also... Um, Christmas Eve service I mentioned, and we also, uh, a couple weeks ago, we gathered food for the food pantry, and we were intending to show you some pictures of what that looked like. We didn't get a chance to do that, but we wanted to let you see a little bit of the shelves being filled. Now, I want to tell you that since that Sunday, a few weeks ago, we collected the food, we, uh, we have been serving more families. In fact, over the last six weeks, we have given food to 130 people in 29 different families. And uh, the need just continues. So anytime you think about the food pantry uh, and you want to donate some food or you can donate cash and we can use that to help buy perishable food for people, uh, it's always a need. And uh, I suspect that as the winter moves forward, it will even grow. So thank you for all of your gifts and contributions to the food pantry. Um, there are always things for us to pray about. Uh, many of those listed in the bulletin. I do want to mention a couple of things. Uh, Donna Zoller's mother uh, died Friday evening. Uh, Jim and Donna have gone to New Hampshire. The service will be Tuesday uh, for uh, Donna's mother. We want to pray for them. And, of course, we want to pray for everyone involved in the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut. It's hard to fathom uh, the events that have, uh, have come about in that setting. Uh, the families, parents, grandparents, siblings... Aunts, uncles, community members, classmates, just, you know, the, a town just devastated. And uh, we, we want to pray for God to, to be so real and present in the lives of people. and Pray for, for the churches to be a presence for Christ there. And to ask for God's grace and mercy in this very difficult time.
Our scripture reading comes from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and also Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 17. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This time we invite children ages two through five to uh, depart for children's church and we invite the ushers to receive this morning's tithes and offerings.
In this moment of praying together, if you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you come to pray, please join me. Father, we come today in gratitude and worship because of Christ. In this season in which we remember and celebrate and anticipate the coming of Christ, we are reminded that we live in a world of pain. and struggle, and suffering. We know this in our own lives. We know that the struggles that we all face with the temptations of sin, temptations of being selfish, the temptation to bitterness, the temptation to greed, the temptation to, to immorality, the the temptations to division and gossip, the temptations to just continually think of ourselves above others and above you. And we ask that you would forgive us. We know the struggle of of pain and and suffering in this world as for in ourselves and, and in those we love who deal with illness and pain and all that comes to us in the bodies. Lord, we pray that that you will heal us and that you will help us. We ask, Father, that, that you will restore to health all that is broken and hurting. Father, we pray that you will comfort everyone who is grieving, that you will give peace into our lives so often filled with turmoil. Lord, we also pray for the struggle and the pain in this world. Think about places like Syria and Egypt and other places of the world where violence and, and war is commonplace. We pray that you would bring peace. Father, we pray for the people who are most affected by the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut. It's so difficult to fathom the pain, questions, anxieties, fear, insecurity, all of the struggles that everyone connected to this tragedy or feeling. Lord, we don't have any answers, but we know that you are, you are at work in the circumstances. We pray that you will bring your spirit of peace and grace and healing into this tragedy. 
pray, Father, that you will help your people to be a source of comfort and a source of grace and a source of healing. Father, we pray that you will give grace to every person hurting, struggling, grieving, as only you can do. Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus came into this world for broken people. We pray that you will come again into our world of brokenness and transform us by the grace of Christ. We pray, Father, that in our world of confusion and strife and uncertainty, that we will be held in the compassionate embrace of the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for Christ. Let the presence of Christ be so clearly visible in us, in our decisions, in our priorities, in all that we are and in all that we do. And we offer our prayers in his name as we remember and pray together the prayer he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Let your word speak into our hearts. As we open our hearts to you, we pray this through Christ. Amen. Wedding rehearsal, training in the off season, extra time in the library, running lines for your part in the play for the 10th, 12th, 15th time, going to the store to make sure that you have all the ingredients for whatever you're making, ironing and setting out your clothes the night before. Extra cleaning in your house as you get ready for guests to come. What do all those things have in common? They're all about ways that we prepare for something to happen. I I have discovered that if something's important to us, we will take the time and energy to prepare for it. And if we don't spend that much time preparing for something, it's probably a good indication that it's not all that important to us. If if being on a team is fun but not important, then we don't really wholeheartedly give ourselves to getting ourselves ready for the season. If being in a production of some kind is fun, but it's not necessarily important to us, then, you know, we might memorize our lines, but we don't really put ourselves fully into it. And, but things that are important to us, we prepare for. Because the reality is, uh, the success of a play isn't determined when the curtain opens in front of the audience on opening night. It's the weeks and weeks before memorizing lines, going through rehearsals, making sure we have all the blocking right and getting everything ready. And being successful as a team doesn't, isn't determined when we're on the field or the court in front of the, the stands full of people But it's in the off-season when we're in the weight room. It's those early morning, late-night practices. It's being in the gym or on the field when nobody else is there. And getting good grades isn't determined when you're sitting in a classroom and opening a blue book to begin to take your exam. It's the weeks and weeks before when you read over the material and read over it again and read over it again and spent late nights in the library to prepare you for the moment when you sit in that classroom. If something's important to us, we prepare. And God knows that, of course, the the most important event that's ever taken place in the world is the coming of Christ And God is not going to let that happen without significant preparation. And his preparation that's been going on through the centuries culminates in the coming of John the Baptist. 
And, and John tells us in this beginning part of his gospel, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all people might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every person was coming into the world. It, it seems odd to me in one sense that in the middle of this hymn about Jesus' coming is this, these phrases about John the Baptist. It, it seems sort of, in a sense, to interrupt the flow of what John is talking about. And, and I suspect that the reason John the author does that is because there are people, even in his day, nearing the late part of the first century, who are more enamored with John the Baptist than they are with Jesus. And, and in the midst of this hymn about Jesus, the author John wants to make sure that everyone understands as important as John the Baptist is, as significant as he is, as vital as he is to the whole story and everything coming about, he is not the light, he's just a witness to the light. And he wants to set that in perspective. And I think that's an important word for us even today in our culture of celebrity worship. You know, sometimes... Without even realizing it, we can become more enamored with the people who help us understand God and the scriptures than with Christ. We get more excited about those people than we do about Christ himself. And we need to be reminded that our lives as followers of God are about Christ. And we give thanks for the people who help us understand that, but it's about Christ. But I think the bigger reason that the author interjects John here in the story is to remind us that God continues to prepare us. No one can say, well, we didn't know when Jesus comes. If you missed the thousands of years building up to Jesus coming, all that the Old Testament says about Jesus, if you miss all of that, then God says, well, here's John. And John will prepare you for the coming of Christ. John comes to help people see Christ, to get ready for Christ. And what's interesting to me is that when you read through the Gospels, it's pretty clear that the people who recognize Jesus as sent from God are the same people who recognize John as sent from God. The people who are open to Jesus are the people who are open to John. And then the people whose hearts are cold toward Jesus are the people whose hearts are cold toward John. Luke chapter 20 is a story where the chief priests and teachers of the law come to Jesus and they say, by what authority are you doing all of this? And Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it just purely human? And they get off over into a little huddle and they talk among themselves and to say, well, okay, this is going to be tough for us. Because if we say it was from heaven, Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you believe him? Because they don't. And if they say if it's from earth, then the people are going to stone us because they think it's from heaven. So they come back with the great answer, we don't know. And Jesus says, fine, then I won't answer your question either. You see the correlation the people who are opposed to Jesus, cold to Jesus, hard-hearted toward Jesus, are cold and opposed and hard-hearted toward John. 
John comes to prepare hearts to receive Jesus. And the people who don't want to hear what John has to say don't want to hear what Jesus has to say either. But the people who listen to John, the people whose hearts are receptive to John, are the people who then are receptive and open to Jesus. And it says something to us about the importance of preparing our hearts for Jesus to work in our lives. And when we, when we look at, what, at John's message throughout the Gospels, they tell us that John's message of preparation is rooted in a spirit of repentance. It is about turning people's hearts back to God. It is about people who are, who are facing the wrong direction and helping them turn around to face the right direction. It's about people whose hearts are, are blocked to God, having them unblocked. And so when we come to Luke's gospel, we read in verse 16 that many of the people of Israel, he will bring back to the Lord their God. He will bring them back. He will turn hearts back to him in the, in the spirit of receptiveness to God. That's John's point. That's why John's there. He's trying to, to get people ready for the message of Jesus. And the question is, what does that look like? How, what, did, what would success look like for John? How would you measure people who have turned their hearts back to God? Well, in verse 17, the angel says to Zechariah that he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now I think what what he's saying really is, people who are prepared, people who understand what John is saying, people who are responding positively to John's message, are people who you describe as fathers who have turned their hearts to their children, and disobedient who have turned, they have opened their hearts to the wisdom of the righteous. Now, the second part of that, I think we get. Now, we understand disobedient people being open and receptive to a word from God through his people. We understand that. We also understand how difficult that can be. You know, when, when people have a word to speak into our lives, often we're defensive about it. We're not real receptive about it. I've had people through the years speak to me about things that, that, I, that I needed to hear. And sometimes that word has come to me in gentle ways. And sometimes it's come in not gentle ways. When it's gentle, I'm a little more apt to receive it. When it's, when it's a harsher criticism, it's, it's harder to receive it. And I get defensive. But I've come to realize that if it's truth, if it's a word that I can say that there, there's truth to that. And I need to hear that. And if I can come to that place, however long it may take me to get there then there is something about that that I think helps me to see a spirit of sensitivity in my soul. That I'm willing to hear what God has to say to me through other people. And we all need that. We all need to hear words from God. God, more often than not, speaks into our lives truth that is difficult for us to hear through people that he brings into our lives. 
That's how we learn. That's how we grow. And there is a correlation between sensitivity and openness to receive what people say to us. That's truth. And a sensitivity and an openness to what God wants to do in our lives. When you move to Luke chapter 20, uh, or I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 3, just a couple of chapters later, John the Baptist is preaching. And, and, you know, John's message is pretty harsh. In chapter 3, and Mike talked about this last Sunday night. In, in chapter 3, Luke says to, to the crowd, you brood of vipers. I've not called anyone here a brood of vipers. And I, I won't say that to you. So you might want to say it to me. But you know, he says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to come? What are you doing here? Repent. And, and the, while the religious leaders stand off to the side and sort of are oblivious to the situation, the crowd says to John, what do we do? How do we respond? What, what should we do to this harsh word, this word from God? And John says to them, if you have two coats, give, give one of them to somebody who has no coat. And then the tax collectors come to John and say, what should we do? And he says, stop overcharging people for their taxes. Just do what's right. And the soldiers come to John and say, what should we do? And he says, don't use your position of power to take advantage of people for your own personal gain. And there is something about these people who the religious leaders standing over to the side would look at and say, those are disobedient people. Those are people who are not religious. Those are people who, who really don't understand God. They're ignorant. They're, they're pagan. They're, they're away from God. But they're the ones who are receptive to God. They're the ones who are receptive to the message of John. And as the story of the Gospels unfolds, they continue to be the people who are receptive to Jesus. I'm just wondering this morning, as you think about your life, has someone spoken truth to you? And how have you responded to that? There is a correlation between the truth that that people speak into our lives and our openness and our sensitivity to God's work in our lives. But the second part of this preparatory message, this idea of what it means to prepare in a spirit of repentance is it's a little bit it's more surprising. He says that, John, the angel says to Zechariah, the people who respond to the message of John and the purpose of John's, of John's message of repentance is to help fathers' hearts be turned to their children. I've been pondering that for a number of weeks. What exactly does that mean? It's a quote from Malachi, chapter 4, verse 6. The difference is in Malachi, he says that the father's hearts will be turned to the children and children's hearts will be turned to their fathers. And that makes a little more sense to us because it's sort of this combining of the whole family relationship, the two-way street. And some actually, some of the gospel translations actually translate Luke one seventeen that way. That families will be reunited. That, that uh, in one of the translations we saw, parents will be reconnected with their children. 
And that the children and parents together will join. And, and that may well be right. But something in me says if the angel wanted to talk about both sides of it, he would. But he doesn't. He just says fathers will be turned, hearts of the fathers will be turned to their children. And there is something in that that I think is significant. In ancient cultures, and actually it's been through cultures throughout history, fathers have power and children don't. You know, I I sort of try to put this into a chart, and this is a little bit simplistic, but I think it's pretty fair that in, in most cultures of the world, ancient and modern, the power resides in males and in parents. And society and culture sees women and children as weak and vulnerable. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm just saying that's the way culture tends to be. And so all of the power tends to rest in fathers and the weakness in female children. There is something about that going on here, I think, in in what the angel is describing for us. That, That fathers who have the power turn their hearts to children who don't. Because we live in a world and we've... And the world has existed for a long time with this mindset. But the people who have power tend to take advantage of the people who don't. And that's true in homes as well as in every other part of society. The most vulnerable people in the world are children. And you can, you can ignore children. You can take advantage of children. You can mistreat children. And quite honestly, there's not a whole lot they can do about it. And often, that's exactly what society does. And God is saying to us, there is a correlation in some form between how we treat children and our relationship with God. When you look at the Gospels, what do you see Jesus how do you see Jesus dealing with children? You know, in, in, in Luke's gospel, or in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, Jesus puts, brings a little child among the, the people there, and he says, whoever wants to follow me has to become like a little child. And later in chapter 10, Jesus gathers a child. The children are coming to him. Parents are bringing children. The disciples rebuke them. And Jesus says, stop it. He rebukes them in the same way he rebukes the wind and the waves as trying to to take their boat under when they're on the sea. Jesus is angry and he's defiant. And he says, you let the children come to me because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Stop treating children as if they don't matter. Stop treating children as if they are second class to me. But it isn't just with Jesus. This has been God's perspective from from the beginning. Throughout history, uh, cultures have tended to mistreat children, at the very least ignore children. And and in the Old Testament, God says about the nations, some nations sacrifice children. And God continually says he forbids that. It's heinous in his eyes. 
But he goes even further and says, you have a responsibility to train your children, to teach them, to invest in them about me and about what it means to be my people. Children are important to my kingdom. I've been thinking a lot about that the last few days after the tragedy in in Connecticut. You know, it's hard to understand these kinds of things happening and we all are searching for answers. We're searching for reasons. We're, We're trying to wrap our minds around it. And we don't know a lot, but one thing we do know is that this is an act of the evil one to a human being, hands down. I mean, that's, what, that's what's going on here. And for a long time, it, it, it's been clear to me that you know, the evil one hates God. And the evil one hates what God loves. And the evil one's trying to destroy what is precious to God. And I think that's why children are often so mistreated. You... you You cause tragedy in a child's life and it can affect them for the rest of their life. Some of you understand that far too well. We see it all the time. And the evil one is continually trying to destroy children because they are precious to God, because they're important to God, because they're vulnerable. And, I've, and I think there probably is some tension about this statement. But something in me wants to declare that it, I, I, would, I find it hard to believe that someone who mistreats children could have a right relationship with God. But it's not just about mistreating children. It's about ignoring them. It's about our attitude, our perspective toward children. It's about pushing them to the periphery. It's about, it's about seeing them as insignificant, unimportant, or maybe just useful. But nothing more than that. And the angel comes to Zechariah and he says, the message of repentance and preparation that John is preaching is about how we treat children. And it's not just about families, as important as that is. I think it's bigger than that. I think it's about God's people. It's about the church. We all know that our image of the church is more often than not shaped by people who are in the church. And that image gets shaped when we're young. That's why every time we dedicate children to God, everyone stands up and we, re- and we, we declare our affirmation and our support to the child and to the family. And we recognize that we are in this together. It's about all of us helping our children know Christ. Because all of us are shaping their image of God and of the church. I can remember in grade school, I was, um, I don't remember, fifth grade maybe, sixth grade. My dad was the pastor of the church where we were, where we were and and I remember it was probably a Sunday, a Sunday after church or maybe it was a Sunday night. And some friends and I were running through the basement of the church, probably playing tag or hide and seek or something. You know what kids do, waiting again. Of course, it could have been about any night of the week because we were there most nights. Um, and, and I remember the man who was uh, Sunday school superintendent, he was kind of cranky toward children. 
And he saw us and he immediately scolded us and he yelled at us. And then he went and told my dad that I was running in the church. Well, you know, my dad handled that really well. And he said to him, okay, I'll take care of it. And he talked to me about it, but he was very good about it. And I have just such positive memories about how my dad handled that. But what I find so intriguing is that it wasn't very many months later that in those days you elected the Sunday school superintendent in, in the elections like we do every spring with other things. And, and this gentleman didn't win the election again. And he'd been the superintendent for many, many years. And he didn't win the election. And from that day to the rest of his life, he never again entered the doors of the church. And it said something to me about what was really going on in his heart that I think was revealed in the way he treated children. And then there are other people in my life who I look back with such fond memories. You know, as a, I remember as a teenager, a couple whose home was always open to me. I, I remember going to their house and spending most of the night typing a paper for a high school class and you know, not even thinking about the fact that they might want to go to bed at midnight or one in the morning. But they were just there for me. And they helped to shape my image of God and of the church. And we, we do that. We're part of that. It's what the church is about. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling in my mind with, with the idea that Marva Dawn presents in one of her books. That, that the agenda of the church is set by the weakest among us. There, there's something about that, that that is grabbing me and intriguing me and, and, and holding me because I think in our culture in which we are enamored with faster, bigger, more successful, our image, children get left behind. The weakest among us get left behind. If we just ignore them because they don't help us get to the end we want to get to. And when we're all about success and, and strength and significance, whatever doesn't help us move to that, we just sort of push to the sides. But the kingdom of God keeps bringing us back to the people who are vulnerable and weak and what we might consider at times insignificant. And children are right in the middle of that. And I have discovered through the years that when God wants to do something deep in my life, when he wants to take me to a new level of of spiritual depth, often he does that not through some uncommon, fantastic kind of moment, but through the daily, ordinary moments of life. It's in the daily, it's in the ordinary that, that God speaks into my heart and begins to chip away at the stuff that needs to be worked on. And my sensitivity about the ordinary has a lot to do with my ability to open my heart to God to do something extraordinary. And I think we sometimes think about children. And we think about the, the least and most vulnerable as sort of just common, ordinary life, and it's not all that significant. But John brings us back to this idea that that is most significant. Because if we are sensitive to vulnerable, to the weak, 
to the people who are on the margins of society and the church. If we're sensitive to them, then surely we will be sensitive to whatever way God speaks into our hearts and into our lives. And sometimes we want to measure success, spiritual success by how much we pray or how much time we spend in the scriptures or how often we come to worship or how invested we are in a Bible study group or how much we give to the kingdom or, or making sure that we take the right positions on key moral issues. And all those things are important and they're significant and, and they're commands of God and we need them. But they are not really good measures of success spiritually. They're not good measures of, of spiritual growth and depth. It's more about how we treat people. Our willingness to think more about vulnerable vulnerable people, children, youth, than about ourselves. And I wonder if maybe, just maybe, God might be able to speak into our hearts as much as when, when we take time to sit down and play games with our children as by listening to another program on Christian radio. Or by or by getting involved in teaching or helping in a class of children or youth rather than continually just investing ourselves in classes that are geared to us. Or when we just take time to listen to youth, young people in our church, instead of ignoring them in order to read another article in a Christian magazine. And those things are important. Our spiritual growth is important and we need to nurture it and it's significant. But what about the proportions? What's our willingness? What's our sensitivity, our spirit? How do we think? What's our attitude? What's our perspective toward children? and youth, and the most vulnerable among us. I'm sure uh, you have seen, as I have, stories coming out of Connecticut the last couple of days. And I saw a couple interviewed whose, whose child witnessed everything that went on. And they said that their, their task right now is to is to do everything they can to make this child feel secure, to spend time with them, to embrace them, to hold them, to, to just give all of their attention to them. And they're right. That's exactly what they need to do. But as I was listening to that and watching that, something in my mind said, that's what we ought to always do. And when I think about it, that's exactly what God has been calling us to do and calling us to be from the very beginning.
As we think about Advent and we think about our preparation for the coming of Christ in the world, as we think about preparing ourselves for Christ to do something new in our lives, how does our spirit, our sensitivity, our attitude toward the least, the most vulnerable children, what does that say about our preparedness for God to work in our lives? Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to what you want to say to us. Lord, we are so easily enamored with ourselves. We so easily forget the little ones. Father, work in our hearts. Open our minds. Turn our hearts that we might be ready for everything you want to do in us. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. Follow the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe after all we've projected? A child in a manger. Lonely and small, the weakest of all, unlikeliest hero, wrapped in his mother's shawl, just a child. Is this who we've waited for?
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.